0: Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the opportunity we always have to come together. Mm-hmm. Father, as we study these doctrines uh, together with friends of the church, we pray that through it you would be drawing us closer to you, and that we would know you better, understand you better, mm-hmm. love you better, serve you better. Father, but we, pray, we only know that that's possible through your Holy Spirit, so we pray that your Spirit would be working in us to receive your word, uh, Father, we're so grateful again for your son Jesus and his death on the cross and resurrection that we too can die to sin and live new lives. Father, we love you and we thank you and we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope and I believe this is finally the last session (laughs) (laughs) of uh, Friendly History. And we're really looking at faith expressed as witness in our faith and practice. So, If you remember those uh, What Friends Believe booklets that I handed you last week, but don't worry, I'll list all those doctrines up here as we go through them again. But um, what we mean by faith expressed as witness of the Christian is we just don't need to have our doctrines figured out, but we're required by God and His Word and furthermore empowered by Christ and His Spirit to be Christians. So we're going to be looking at how to actively live our faith, not just what we know about our faith. And so Christianity, again, is just not what we know and believe, but it's who we are and what we do. And so in in George Fox's time, again, the the biggest problem that set him into his disillusionment, if you will, uh, um, with Christianity of his day was just the utter hypocrisy of folks who claimed to be Christians and perhaps even taught Christianity, but then they went about their lives showing more semblance to worldly people than to Christ. And this should not be, and so Fox talks in his journal, he's visiting a meeting once. And there was, this was a mixed meeting, it wasn't just friends, but there were other uh, state churches there. And there was discussion of the blood of Christ, and how the blood covers us from sin, and it saves us for heaven. We read George Fox said that he cried out among them in his journal, and he says, Do ye not see the blood of Christ? See it in your hearts. To sprinkle your hearts and consciences from dead works, to serve the living God. And as you can see, that's pretty much verbatim of Hebrews 9.14, that we're we're set free from dead works, not just, oh, we get to go to heaven, but we're set free from dead works and we get to serve the living God. So we're going to pick up faith and practice where we left off. Last week we looked at ten doctrines, we're going to look at ten more items and faith expressed as witness in this. As we did last week, we'll probably pause and spend a little time on things that sound more distinctly quicker. <laughs> so uh, first, though, is Christian witness through ministry. It's kind of banking on what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, that we are one body, but many parts. And uh, we all have gifts to give to the ministry. I, I, I boldened the line here in the faith and practice. Says, we believe that the Holy Spirit bestows gifts on the followers of Christ for them to use on behalf of church and society, and that these gifts should be exercised in all of life, not just at religious gatherings. And that's something I see that you, that, something that I believe you'll see that Friends is heavy on, kind of starting with Fox's reaction. And it's a message valuable for us in 21st century individualized, often compartmentalized America, that the kingdom of God is a city on a hill, a city within a city, a people within a broader people, and we aren't called to just be Christians in the church and then worldly people in the world. There should be no difference in countenance or acting, but rather we need to take the church and the inner witness of Christ everywhere. Second, where we'll set up kind of our first camp tonight is Christian Witness to Peace, so let us read it in its entirety and see if we can then unpack it without trying to take up the remainder of the night. <laughs> but it reads, we believe the precepts of Christ our Lord and the whole spirit of his gospel call us to live at peace with all people. Therefore, we consider war and violence incompatible with the holiness we profess. We ask our leaders to choose nonviolent alternatives for sustaining economic and civil order. We respect government as an instrument of God to restrain evil and promote justice, and we submit to it in matters that do not interfere with obedience to Christ our Lord. When conflicts arise among persons, we will resolve them in a spirit of humility, with love for those who oppose us, and in accordance with biblical methods. Of peacemaking. First thing I would take note of this is we're talking about peace, both in the general and public sense, as well as the personal and community sense. So I also wanted to share personally that I grew up in a church that did not talk about things like peace emphatically. Um, too often, and I say emphatically because I don't think there's any church out there that would outwardly promote chaos, disorder, or some form of non-peace, maybe except Westboro Baptist Church, but anyways, I grew up in a church where peace was not a core or central tenet that seemed to be verbally expressed to me, that I really hadn't had thoughts one way or another about it because I really just never thought about it, and I was first introduced to the idea, obviously, when I came to this church But then there has been another group that I've been reading up on in recent years that have given me an appreciation and an understanding of peace, and that is the Amish. I've been reading a few books on the Amish, so I want to put a plug in here for another good book, and actually a few of you, I think already read it, Amish Peace, I think you read it, and it's a really, really good book, and um, it's about the nickel Mines shooting, and it's a, a really great read, and it really gives a great understanding of their peace stance and just the... Really, the audacity it took for them to go and ask for, or go and forgive the family of the shooter of Nickel Mines, and so just this great understanding of peace. Let me give some scripture to what we're talking about. First, let's look at the Sermon on the Mount. And um, whenever I do perhaps another Quaker sermon series next, I hope to go through the Sermon on the Mount because that is actually really where we Quakers find their distinctions, as it were is really in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and it's because of a really firm and literal and unapologetic understanding of it, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. So look at, let's look at some verses related to the to peace and the Sermon on the Mount. First, let's take a look at some of the Beatitudes. Um, Matthew 5, verse 5, The gentle, some translations say the meek, are blessed, or they will inherit the earth. <laughs> God looks for a gentle people. The word actually defined, uh, I think, and, and gives us a great picture of what we never thought of is uh, one word study said biblical meekness is not weakness, but rather refers to exercising God's strength under his control, demonstrating power without undue harshness. So, power <laughs> without undue harshness. God's strength under his control. How about Matthew 5, 7? It says, The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. Merciful. I think about the parable of the unforgiving servant, where the master forgave his enormous debts, and then that servant went out and didn't forgive someone else who owed him a lot smaller debt. (laughs) And so the master hears of that, and he revokes his granting of forgiveness that he handed over to his servant, And he then hands him over to be tortured. And then Jesus actually says, so the Heavenly Father will do to you, he says. That's in Matthew 18, 21-35. I encourage you to read that later. You have homework. (laughs) The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. Matthew 5, 9. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called the sons of God. And that word, I don't know if it strikes us, Peace makers. <laughs> we are not only called to be a peaceful people, but to make peace. <laughs> and this is why we think about Quakers in the colonial area. William Penn was a very busy man, <laughs> thinking of uh, trying to go to make a peaceful state in Pennsylvania to work fair and good deals with the Native Americans. Or we think about the Civil War, a lot of Quakers working in the Underground Railroad, working for abolition, they were busy and active about the process of making peace. How about the next three verses in Matthew 5? And, and I really think a good preface for as we look at these verses is I remember some prayer requests I heard at church on Sunday, and we talked about how the media was bad-mouthing Christians and things like that, and it's not that I don't find that saddening, but I personally don't try to pay a lot of attention to it, nor do I think I should, nor do I think I should be surprised to hear it, nor really should I be saddened to hear it because joy, peace, and rest aren't on what the world thinks of me or of Christians. My joy, peace, and rest comes from my relationship with God, and we listen to these words Matthew 5 verses 10 through 12 Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed For the kingdom of heaven is theirs You are blessed when they insult and persecute you And falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you So we see here, again, what appears to be a non-violent, simple acceptance of persecution that is supposed to roll off our back. (laughs) We're not doormats. When I think of doormats, I think of people who let injustice be done to them and respond by cowering and then laying down and taking it. The difference is this sort of acceptance of persecution is accepting it and doing what God wants with it. And that is not taking it in despair and self-pity or weakness, but also not responding violently, but just taking it and spitting it out. <laughs> There's a difference there than saying, oh, woe is me, you're right, or my my value comes from God, not from you, sorry. You know, that sort of thing. How about Matthew 5, 38-40? You have heard it, that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth, But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Ask for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Now, as I read in faith and practice, nowhere do I find any subscription to the belief of (laughs) non-resistance. However, um... There is the belief that war is never an answer to anything, period. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what I will say, in the doctrine we just read, and in the Richmond Declaration of of Faith on Peace, which I have included in your outlines, the Richmond Declaration, nowhere do I see any particulars about not bearing arms or non-resistance in the case of emergency or breaking and entering situations. However, it shouldn't care what the Quakers say. What does Jesus say? <laughs> it seems pretty cut and dry to me. Don't resist an evildoer. In the original Greek, that says don't resist an evildoer. <laughs> <laughs> so Jesus said if somebody slaps you on the right cheek. Now people are quick to say, well, that meant if anyone insults you, because that was a well-known insult back then, a slap on the right cheek. That really doesn't change the meaning of this passage. <laughs> Nor does it suggest a different understanding than a plain reading. That is, I would probably still be insulted today if somebody came up to me and slapped me on the right cheek. And it seems that Jesus would say to me about that, present the other cheek also. Now let's differentiate between, again, doormats and gentleness. Let's not read into this passage a set of rules. Okay, I'm slapped in the face. All I can do is present my other cheek. Of course not. We can probably say, why did you do that? (laughs) Why did you insult me? We can probably protect ourselves. We can probably walk away and say, don't slap me again. Don't fight back, though. That's all Jesus is saying. Don't try to overcome the world's ways of violence by more violence. Does that make sense? Sort of. So don't don't overcome what... um, if the person slaps you, don't slap them back because that's just doing what the world is doing. So, looking for a more peaceful alternative. Now the question is, is how far are we to take it? <laughs> are we to take one slap per cheek and then we're throwing our fists up and say, that's two slaps, I'm on. <laughs> I'll take you to Matthew 26, since we're already in Matthew. Jesus is being arrested. They came up and took hold of Jesus and arrested him. And at that moment... One of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. He struck the high priest's uh, slave and cut off his ear. Now, we should note here that Peter was probably just wielding his sword and going for the head. And he just got his ear. Then Jesus told him, Put your sword back in its place, because all who take up a sword will perish by a sword. Or do you think that I cannot call on my Father, and he will provide me at once with more than twelve legions of angels, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that, it, that say it must happen this way? Two things here. The first thing I'll point out is that people who are really unsettled idea, by ideas of pacifism and personal peace <laughs> will point out this is a pretty big moment in history of the world. <laughs> These are pretty unique circumstances. This is the God of the universe about to atone for the sins of the world. He has legions of angels at his beck and call if he wanted to resist. And you read in Revelation, he doesn't. He sends them down and they do a good slaughtering fest in Revelation 19, I believe. So, but, he doesn't. So he can accomplish dying for the sins of the world. Of course, he doesn't want to resist here because scripture needs to be fulfilled. However, let us not overlook Jesus' proverb to Peter here. John tells us that this was Peter who drew his sword in his account. And Jesus says, put your sword back in its place because all who take up a sword will perish by a sword. And that sounds like Jesus is giving a general principle to live by. Not just something to live by in this moment. He doesn't say, put your sword back in this moment because if you were to use the sword now, you'd perish by the sword later this night. <laughs> he says, all who take up a sword will perish by the sword. And it goes back to witness. And this is why I want you to see the, the, the um I think the principal point in the peace stance, are Christians ever to be a people of violence, even to overcome violence? Or are we to be people who are counter-cultural, even ever under stress and persecution? Back in Matthew 5, we also read, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he causes his sons to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus says it is a direct reflection of God to love our enemies. We realize that we are made in the image of God. Jesus dies to restore us to that image. And Matthew 5 ends with a very high call. Matthew five forty eight: Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And that's what Jesus died for. God says, I love my enemies. God says, I loved you before you became my own. God says, I love the murderer. I love the rapist. I love the alcoholic. And I love them into the kingdom. I'm your father. You're my sons. Love like I love. That's what Jesus is saying. If your son or daughter ever hit you in the face, would you hit them back? Or, would there be a lot to overcome in your own self to respond violently because your default affection towards your son or daughter is love? In other words, you should probably seek peaceable means. That's probably what you would do, is seek peaceable means to restrain that situation if your son or daughter ever attacked you. And I think that's what God's getting at, and that's what we're getting at here. (laughs) Anyways, big subject, and like I said before, I might teach an entire sermon series or a lesson series like this later on in the future, future about the peace stance, but uh, we haven't talked about everything yet, so. but we should move on if we want to finish tonight. Now, most people who take offense to peace, which sounds like an oxymoron, I'm offended by your touting peace <laughs> in such extreme ways. Quakers, nor the Bible, teaches injustice is okay. The Bible never teaches that injustice is okay. Because this is what most people find offensive about peace. They believe that justice in some situations and occasions can only be accomplished through violent means. Not so. If there is anything that the kingdom of God that is already living and active teaches us is that Jesus has ushered in the most justice-producing kingdom, Without any violence whatsoever. I could say on the part of Jesus and his people. There was a lot of violence done to them. On on the 13th doctrine, uh, we find that Christian witness to justice. It reads, we witness to the dignity and worth of all persons before God. We repudiate and seek to remove discrimination based on gender, race, nationality, or class. We deplore the use of selfish ends to gain unfair advantage, and we urge political, economic, and social justice for all peoples. We consider civil order most just when conscience is free and religious faith is uncoerced. So this kind of goes against the grain, I think, in some thinking of America, especially this last line. But we consider civil order is most just when conscience is free and religious faith is uncoerced. And I think because people believe, and I believe, that America was founded as a Christian nation, it has crept, I believe, in the American Christian psyche, I think, to fall back on this fact as a means to almost coerce people to religious faith. And that's not what Jesus did. Now, Jesus gave lots of passionate pleas for people to accept him, but he never condemned them when they didn't. In fact, he told his disciples that when they were not received, told them, well, let them know that they're being judged and walk off. And they can't do anything about that. Furthermore, we see and hear the idea of equality. There should be no discrimination based on gender, male or female, or on race. And I would include that race encompasses Middle Eastern folks, and blacks. <laughs> race includes all people. Um, and, or on nationality, and this includes Saudis, or Iraqis, or North Koreans. And on class, everyone is made in the image of God, and so Christians urge political, economic, and social justice for all peoples. Nothing I don't think to disagree with here, at least I don't think. Fourteen, commitment to simplicity. We'll be doing a sermon series on this in the coming months, but I'll point out here kind of a simple understanding for simplicity. (laughs) As friends, we have a long tradition for adhering to scriptural injunctions for plain living. In this respect, we are encouraged to work toward transforming the values of our culture rather than conforming without question. And that last part especially, we work. (laughs) So simplicity is not nothingness or rest, but we work to transform the values of our culture rather than conforming without question. How so? I could be wrong... But I think um, Christianity, both in Jesus' day and our own, takes note of a lot of useless, meaningless, and unimportant things in our culture. And so we seek to transform our culture by being people simply focused on what Jesus would have us do and on on what's most important. So, for example, do I need 60 DVDs in my possession? (laughs) Do I need access to 50 kinds of coffee in my cupboard? Do I, should I spend copious amounts of time doing useless things such as perusing the internet or reading hobby magazines or watching large amounts of TV? Simplicity means to simplify our focus in life to doing what Jesus wants all the time. It's simple in that we have one simple command, follow him. That doesn't mean life will be easy or without stress, but it will be simple in what we are doing. <laughs> it's a simple command. Next is commitment to integrity. We read, we believe that integrity of speech and action honors Christ as it advances truth. Therefore, should characterize our social and business relationships. In allegiance to Christ's command, we refrain from swearing oaths and from profanity of speech. We consider integrity a mark of Christian holiness. So, integrity... Mark 5, again from the Sermon on the Mount, he says in 33-37, to 37, he says again, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black. But let your word, yes, be yes, and your no, be no. Anything more than that is from the evil one. So Christians should be holy people reflecting God. (laughs) There should be no lie, no deception in us. After uh, our series on simplicity, we're going to go to what I like to call the book of ouch, And that is the book of James. (laughs) Because it's very straightforward, and and James doesn't really have anything good to say about our tongue. (laughs) Uh, James says this in James 3, he says, We praise our Lord and Father with it, and we curse men who are made in God's likeness with it. Praising and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out, out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt water spring yield fresh water. So, be simple, humble, and by God's grace, be people of integrity in speech. (laughs) People should know we are Christians by our words and actions. We move on, respect for human life, another kind of controversial one. We reject the unchristian preempting of God's authority over human life because we trust God as the righteous and final judge before whom we spend our lives in probation. We oppose capital punishment. Because we believe in the sacredness of human life. We oppose abortion for personal convenience. So we are made in the image of God. The idea is he decides when we live. And He des- we believe that he decides when we are to go. Over in John 8, 3-11. Some of you might not have thought of this. First of all, I didn't. But you'll find out why here in a minute. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, This woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked us to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, The one without sinning among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the women in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on do not sin anymore. I bring this up because the law of Moses, in your Bibles, that Jesus knew, stated that adulterers are to die by stoning Regardless of the evil motives who brought of the men who brought this woman to Jesus, they were right. <laughs> we should Regardless, um, Paul says in Philippians, if the gospel is still preached by people with wrong motives, glory be to God. And so I think the idea of the law of Moses was still being called into usage, but again with the wrong motives. What's amazing though is that Jesus, the very God who broke this law circumvince it, and he doesn't put it into practice. Now, we can ask why, and we can dissect this passage, and I can have another sermon right now, (laughs) but the point being is that Jesus chose life over death. He chose giving this woman another day to repent, then put into practice, and did not put into practice, the very law that he created. That's one Occasion, a unique occasion, I know. However, we also note what Paul says in Romans 12. If possible, on your part, live at peace with everyone. Friends, must be talking to Quakers, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for his wrath. For it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Conquer evil with good. Is to conquer evil people by taking their lives, doing good to them. God says in Ezekiel 33, 11, I have no pleasure in the deaths of the wicked. Would it make sense then to leave up to God vengeance and justice, the one who made us and takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, when to avenge and when to enact justice? As for us, we're told if our enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. If he is evil, kill him. Oh, it doesn't say that. So, we move on. Respect for the body. We affirm the sacredness of the body, mind, and spirit and the necessity for Christians to conduct themselves in ways that honor God. Out of respect for ourselves and consideration for those we influence, we refuse to be defiled by salacious literature and amusements and we reject involvement that could lead to drug or alcohol abuse or to occult religious practices. We consider the body a temple of God to be cared for with respect, the mind a gift from God to be developed for personal and social enrichment, and the Spirit, an inner place for God to dwell. Pretty self-explanatory, but I think very important, especially about salacious literature and amusements. It's very easy to be susceptible to those things in our day and age, because they're constantly being screamed at us. John says in 1 John 2, um, 15-17, Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, with its lust, is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. Mm-hmm. Number 18. Christian witness to human sexuality. We hold that only marriage is conducive to godly fulfillments in sexual relationships for the purposes of reproduction and enrichment of life, we consider sexual intimacy outside marriage as sinful because it distorts God's purposes for human sexuality. We denounce, as contrary to the moral laws of God, acts of homosexuality, sexual abuse, and any other form of sexual perversion. The Church, however, as a community of forgiven persons, remains loving and sensitive to those we consider in error because God's grace can deliver from sins of any kind. We are called to forgive those who have repented and to free them for participation in the church. So, this is the doctrine that's been on the floor for debate in recent years, and much led to the split in our yearly meeting. And uh, the Northwest Yearly Meeting, the one that Woodland Friends is staying with, still upholds and affirms this doctrine, and is currently remaining in this language. And I would note that the other yearly meeting, when they first formed, before they did anything else, they made an inclusion minute. So they didn't even have their faith or practice or anything set up, they just wanted to stay right away. Well, we not only approve, affirm, we don't even see it as sin any persons of the LGBTQ population, and so that's kind of the reason they were formed. Number nineteen, Christian witness to the home. We believe the church sustains the home, whether the home consists of immediate family members, persons together because of need, or one person alone. We value the single person and respect singleness, whether by choice or circumstance gospel order affords equality to single and married persons. We believe that marriage is ordained of God to order the human family in love and that it is a lifetime commitment not to be broken except on scriptural grounds. But we also recognize the church as a place for the healing of hurts including those of broken marriages. We hold the godly home accountable for the nurture and care of those within its circle particularly the children and the aged. For all in our various homes the um, church provides support for the disciplines of truth and love and sustenance in times of distress. And I would just say that I really, I didn't see this earlier, but I really like its line in there, we hold the godly home accountable for the nurture and care of those within its circles, particularly the children and the aged. And uh, I just think that because there is this norm, it feels like, that while well, the church takes care of discipling my children, and that's not how it should be. The, the people at home take care of discipling Now, church certainly helps. But I think sometimes we get that backwards. Number 20, commitment to Christian faith and witness. Kind of expressing the fact that all these items of faith expressed as witness isn't here for to look at and agree with, but also to practice. (laughs) And so it states, we believe the Christian life is characterized by discipline, devotion, and commitment, by a hunger for God and a thirst for righteousness. This commitment is strengthened by habits of prayer and Bible reading. For us, this Christian faith involves commitment to the work of friends, although we respect freedom of conscience and honor diversity in the family of God. We affirm our covenant with God as friends' people. Therefore, we aim to be faithful to those structures of our denominational life through which our gospel witness is made clear. So that covers all 20 of our doctrines last week and this week. before uh, closing I wanted to make aware of you though of our queries and then I want to talk a little bit about the structure of our church first queries if you have your what we believe booklets but also if you have your hymnals in front of you if you open your hymnal I think right on the inside cover are the queries that are in faith and practice those are what make friends queer no (laughs) no. good question though good query a query is just a question Yes, now it's actually their faith and practice reads. I'm about to tell you what queries are. Oh, sorry. That's all right. (laughs) The queries are thoughtful discussions that remind people of the spiritual and moral values friends seek to uphold. They help individuals in the church to consider the true source of spiritual strength, to nurture loving relationships, and to maintain a strong Christian witness to society. The queries should be read frequently as a whole or in part in meetings for worship and business and other gatherings of friends and in private devotions. Always there should be time for reflection. Reading the queries is a tradition of friends. I'm not too good at this, but I I do sometimes, and I should say far and few between, will put a query in the bulletin, especially if it might be relevant, or question relevant to my sermon, or sometimes if it's open worship, I will put some queries in there for people to think on during open worship. But they also are good for personal devotion. Dean Kalmukas tells me that he reads them frequently, and so I certainly would encourage you to maybe incorporate it in your personal time. And let me just give you Query 2 for consideration. Um, Query 2 says, Do you cultivate your spiritual growth through prayer and Bible reading and through attendance at meetings for worship and study? Are you finding joy in the Lord? And actually, the second part of the query has been on my heart lately. There have just been those Christian folks I know, and it's really worth asking about, since it is a fruit of the Spirit. Are you finding joy in the Lord? (laughs) There seems to be a lot of Christians who look at our world and allow the world to decide our happiness for us and to decide our contentment. Where we see repeatedly in the New Testament, in times of trial and persecution and mass hatred of Christians... We never see Jesus, Peter, or Paul saying, embrace your persecutions and let them decide your day in, day out emotions. Rather, Paul commands in Philippians 4 he says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. I'll be working on that for the rest of my life. (laughs) But in everything, through the peace of God, um, Through prayer and petition, I skipped the line, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things, do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Are you finding joy in the Lord? It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's worth asking. Then I want to end on quality and structure, particularly of our church, and as would be in one way or another in any of the churches in the entire entire yearly meeting. I've included some charts in your package, and I hope that they're discernible. Um, Let me just read this, though, from the faith and practice, because it did a lot better job than I did as I tried to explain to you what a yearly meeting is. Some of you were looking at me like I have no idea what you're saying a few weeks ago. So this describes both what a yearly meeting is and the basic premise of the church and how it's set up. It says, the denomination of friends consists of yearly meetings with their constituent branches and delegate structures around the world. The bond of union is maintained by annual correspondence between them, by issuing and receiving the credentials of ministers, by granting and receiving certificates of membership, by joint participation in various ministries and by occasional gatherings. Each yearly meeting is independent from others in the, do- in the declaration of its doctrinal covenant and the transaction of its business. Cooperation has resulted in groupings of yearly meeting and a shared statement of faith as described in the historical statement, which is in the faith and practice. And then it says, Friends recognize and emphasize that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, that he dwells in the midst of his people as well as in their hearts, and that he guides the understanding of believers, thus enabling them individually and corporately to obey his will. Friends believe that Christ confers upon each believer some special gift or gifts to be exercised faithfully according to ability. In the church, members have equal rights and privileges varying only in accordance with the nature of their gifts and their faithfulness in exercising them. There are no distinctions in the rights, privileges, or responsibilities of members because of gender, color, or race. Friends, polity is connectional rather than congregational or episcopal. Therefore, the yearly meeting represents the highest court of appeal in matters of faith and practice. One more paragraph. The business of the church is transacted in regular announced sessions in which every active member has a right to participate. Deliberations are aimed at determining the will of God rather than collecting majority opinions. It is expected, therefore, that worship shall surround business deliberations, and that policies and practices shall reflect Christian unity.
1: A few things I want to emphasize, we
0: recognize and emphasize that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. I've said it to a few of you uh, times, but I really feel like I'm the congregate at the church here that just happens to be the pastor. (laughs) And that's, I think, how it should be. Now I know because of cultural conceptions and worldly misconceptions of the church, people might come in here and if the preaching is bad or if I rub them the wrong way or if I'm not living up to their expectations, they might make a quick judgment and leave. I think that's sad. (laughs) And I have come to believe myself, personally, not that my opinion matters, (laughs) that this church is led by Christ and every congregate, whether they admit it or not. If they're trusting in Jesus as Savior and are true Christians, ultimately their organization is led by Christ and not the pastor. It's best when the congregation truly recognizes that and let Christ lead. Now don't hear me wrong. My second emphasis is that Christ gifts people into church for the church. That's what was stated in this, basically. This means that the pastor might be gifted in preaching and teaching. <laughs> I've personally met other pastors outside and inside of Friends of the Domination that I find to be really gifted in administration and in organizing events and face-to-face relatability, and I envy them in a humble Christian sort of way, (laughs) but uh, because I'm not the best, I'm pretty much an introvert, (laughs) and I'm not the best administrator, but we trust providentially to put the right pastor in at the right time, and furthermore, the church is a place where everyone is equally important. And so simply because I preach and teach does not mean that I'm more important, or that if I were not to preach and teach for whatever reason, that this church would somehow lose its voice. And while I may not be a good administrator or an introvert, I know lots of good administrators and good counselors in this church right now that should be used by God, and their gifts should be used. Not to say that I shouldn't work on my own in those areas, but God has given the church all these people with these gifts. And to this day, I don't know about you, but I still think about, first of all, I'll think about the Life Center, and then Kelly Lineberry or Arby Schoen, those are the pastors there. Or I'll think about the Clearwater Valley Assembly of God, and then think about Joel Bremer, he's the pastor there. Or I'll think about Valley View Church of Nazarene, and then I'll think about Pastor Mike Ross, who's down there. And I don't think that's how we're supposed to do it. I don't think we should think Woodland Friends Church, Pastor Kevin. We should be thinking Life Center, Valley of Nazarene, Assembly of God, Woodland Friends, and then we should think Jesus Christ and His Church. And each person at each of those places, whether we know faces or not, are on equal importance of their pastors because everyone is needed for the church. <laughs> exactly. What this means business wise is that I don't run the church. <laughs> But Christ runs the church through his body, and Paul tells us who his body is, all of us. And when this church meets together for business, if you haven't been to a business meeting yet, friends are very visible in showing that it's not the pastor's show. And personally, that's a burden off my shoulders. <laughs> I remember whenever I was talking to people about being the pastor here, they said, Well, you come out of a Nazarene denomination, you might not be uh, very familiar with the way. We have pastoral ministry in the Quaker Church. And I have said, I've never been a pastor, so it'll all be new to me. I won't really care. <laughs> so at um, quarterly business meetings, we just had one at the end of January. We'll have one in April. We hear reports from the treasurer. We hear the reports from the stewards. So I give them a report every quarter. As well as we talk about business that the body needs to discuss. And then these meetings are chaired by what is called our clerk. And Let me read for you in faith and practice what a clerk is. A member of the church is appointed annually to preside over all business sessions. The presiding clerk, acting on behalf of the church, signs all of its official documents except those designated to the trustees. The clerk gives guidance to the committees and is an ex officio officer of them. Qualities desired in the clerk are sound judgment, spiritual discernment, and ability to determine the will of the body in business deliberations. The church also appoints annually a recording clerk to keep faithful records of all business proceedings and provide them copies to those authorized to request them. An assistant clerk and/or recording clerk or reading clerk also may be appointed, and those are probably for bigger congregations. But Steve Tuning is our clerk, and so that means he's at all committee meetings and committees such as the stewards who oversee physical aspects and building and, and church facility management and whatnot, and then there's elders who oversee the spiritual health of our church. Then we have a nominating committee who puts forth names um, to serve in various parts of the church, whether it be serving as elder or, or steward, and they bring those up to the um, business meeting, and the business meeting will decide as a body, we will accept your recommendation, we want that person there. And um, we have an education committee that's kind of in charge of our Sunday schools, not kind of, is in charge of our Sunday schools and BBS and things like that. And then in, in faith and practice, I had to go all the way to page 64 to learn what the pastor does. <laughs> it, it, it's not even under a uh, friend's practice form of government because they don't see the pastor as a governor of the church. <laughs> and not all Friends' churches might not even have pastoral ministries by design. They, they don't, they're not looking for one, they just don't have one. And so many times the elders are given shared responsibilities to preach or open worship is just practiced every Sunday. But what all this is pointing to is again that the church is ran by Christ and Christ's body. And this means all decisions in this church are of course given discretion to folks in committees. So in other words, there have been times where maybe I've ask the elders what they might think about a certain sermon series, and, you know, that whenever I first came here, I want to do a sermon series on this, what do you think? And they'll say, why are you asking us? Sounds good. <laughs> and then... Um, but it is easier to slot some of those responsibilities. Yes. Onto the pastor, and they can't do all the work. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, and actually I asked the elders about what I'm doing right now, about a year ago, and they thought it was a good idea, and it only took me a year to get it going. <laughs> But for the most part there is discretion given to committees and then recommendations are then given to the body at the business meeting with the premise and the belief that the body is waiting on Christ and his Holy Spirit to lead his church in Woodland. So we believe if you're in Christ you're part of his body, you're part of a priesthood of believers, equal and on par with all believers including pastors and there are no classes in Christ's kingdom. So with that being said, I believe that concludes our friends' friendly history. But I just wanted to make sure I I covered and emphasized everything I wanted to hear in in here. You see the friends' structure and polity uh, page. And just I I gave a few key terms there at the very top left. I think the C's cut off. But consensus, I wanted to point out that this is not always a majority opinion. (laughs) That's not what consensus is. It is rather seeking the will of God. That's what consensus, at least in our business meetings, are. And then you'll see a line that goes out, and those are a few quaker eased phrases or terms. Um, I don't think uh, you'll hear them too much here, but every now and then, are all hearts clear? In other words, is everything that needed to be said is that said? Are we clear to go from this business meeting? And then, Quakers do not vote, but... And I say that, but not because I think this is voting, but I think it is a good way to do business. There are two things. We can stand aside. And so when a member... We're talking about business meetings. Yeah, business meetings. Yep. We do vote in elections. In elections. Yeah. Yes. Yes, we can vote in elections. But we don't vote in business meetings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for clarifying. I don't think these things. <laughs> stand aside. So when a member holds a contrary view to what's currently on the floor as a way forward for a church um, there were a few folks that stood aside whenever they called me as pastor and then I wanted to go to them and ask them why did you stand aside and wanted to talk through things with them because I didn't want to come in here and say well you're not my friend <laughs> or anything like that then there is stand in the way and we give freedom to people to do this not when a member holds such a contrary view and feels so strongly that they will not stand aside but rather encourage the body to return to to praying and seeking God's will. And this is because there have been times in history where maybe the will of God was one person, what they were thinking. And it's not good to go with the majority. But I should say that also the clerk is given freedom to discern what the will of God is. And he may at times say, well, I know you're saying you're standing in the way, but I really sense that this is the route of the body and we're going to do this. And that's okay also in friendly and friends' business. And so you see here the local meeting and the yearly meeting, and that's just how it's set up. Members voice what they hear about God saying to a given subject, to the clerk, and then the clerk, after hearing the members' voices, then seeks to hear and voice to the congregation back what is perceived to be the will of Christ. So that's what he's doing. So whenever everybody's in here talking, Steve will at times saying, Okay, I'm hearing you're all saying this. Is this true? Yeah. Okay, Lord, if this is what you want, okay, let's do that. So that's just a little view of structure and quality. And then if you're curious later on, or the structure of a business meeting on the the last part of that, that's just the way that business meetings really go usually, at least here. Um, uh, One of the things that I wanted to really emphasize is at the bottom I say, on the right side, Christian conduct is to be ensured by the clerk. And so I say the clerk may choose to invite the body into prayer before a big decision, Or to table a subject if consensus is really not being reached and he senses emotional disturbance or spiritual endangerment to the body if we're getting heated in our discussions and it's going nowhere. uh, Steve will say, okay, it's it's table. And actually that happened at last business meeting. We'll talk about this next time. Um, And he tells us to be in prayerful consideration of the subject. It's not just to say you're acting like a bunch of immature fooies. He's saying, no, obviously this is something that's very important. We need to Pray about this, think about this, and come back later. And then the last page there is the committees. Um, That's kind of where the committees are at right now in your own church. And back in April, we're going to make a few changes because you see at the end of a lot of these names, three year, two year, one year. And that's because people are on rotating tenures, if you want to call it tenure. time spans, whatever. And uh, the people that says one year next to them, those are the people that are nominating committee, which is also in this book, in this page. That's what the people need to discuss. Okay, we want to go to this person and see if they want to continue, or we might decide to extend an invitation to another person to serve for the next three years. And that's not a, usually, I should say all the time whenever we do that, that's never to say you're such a lousy elder that we're going to be a different person. It's more of... We want you to take a break. We want to give another person an opportunity to lead in this manner. So that's just uh, that's just the way that the church is set up. So, all right. I think that's all I have. Any questions, comments?